If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. Many politicians are paying tribute to former Mississauga Mayor Hurricane Hazel McCallion. But will they actually learn the just get it done attitude? Here's Scott Thompson. There's your guitar. Here's your guitar right there, your country guitar. Bow, 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 bow. It is Hamilton today. How you doing? Great to have you aboard. And uh, I know what you're saying. What's with the old possum? What's with the George Jones? Well, of course, it's uh, it's January. Well, 31st, last day of, and we're going through uh, the Rolling Stone Top 200 Singers of All Time. George Jones brings us to number 24. There you go. And I think that's one of the first, like early 1960s, 64, something like that. All right, there you go. All right, It is uh, the last day of January, and um, it's also the last day of uh, dry January. Thank God. Holy smokes. Thank goodness it is the end of dry January. Uh, not, nothing to do with me. It's just I'm tired of hearing friends saying it's dry January, so I'm not partaking. Now I don't have to listen to them anymore. <laughs> just buy them a drink. I'm just kidding. All right, uh, what's going on today? Uh, Brantford Bulldogs, how does that sound? I know, I know, it stings a bit. Uh, but it's three years during the reno of uh, First Ontario Centre, and um, 2023 season on for three years, so um, there you go. Uh, well, the reno's going on, they got a place to stay, and I guess you can't argue with that. Um, yeah, anyway. Uh, also, uh, weird news coming out of uh, the Liberals. Remember the Liberals? Do you have any sound? Do you have any sound effects of crickets? Remember the provincial liberals? I know. I, I think they, they, the whole thing fits in a, in a minivan now. Um, but I, I guess they've been looking for a leader and um, and having no luck. So they're chasing the Green Party's Mark uh, Mike Schreiner, who's quite a popular candidate, well known. And so, so yeah, isn't that kind of bizarre? So uh, when you go left, really far to the left, and it's not working for you, you just go farther to the left, I guess. I'm not sure. Uh, although I'm not sure uh, Mike Schreiner would agree with that comment either. So that'll be fascinating to see what comes out of that. It's great for Mike Schreiner because his his notoriety, his, uh, <laughs> his, his persona, everything. I mean, it's just amplified. Um, and even that of the Green Party, I guess. As far as the Liberals, I'm not sure how much it's doing for them. Uh, but we'll leave that at that. What else we got going on? Uh, oh, uh, it's terrible numbers coming out of British Columbia. Uh, overdose deaths, uh, talk drugs uh, second uh, highest on record so they're having issues there trying to get a handle on that and um, decriminalizing some uh, of those toxic drugs in order to somehow alleviate this problem or uh, or fix it in some way so uh, again issues continuing out there also uh, Canadian long-term care standards we're going to talk about this coming up a little later on this hour uh, certainly we remember uh, during the initial stages for like the first wave second wave when we knew nothing about COVID-19 uh, 
that uh, long-term care hit very hard and and holes in that just like the healthcare system uh, obviously showing so new long care uh, long-term care standards uh, are coming out but they, and they're on the federal level so we'll see what that is and, and how much teeth all of that has uh, at the end of the day going to talk to uh, Franco Terrazano Canadian Taxpayers Federation and obviously lots of contracts are coming due and inflation's through the roof uh, and some of them are, are, are pretty high we're going to talk about that coming up uh, in just a little later on also uh, again lots of chatter about reform in the healthcare system and, and what direction we're going on all of that uh, almost all doctors in Canada support changes to medical licensing that makes it easier for healthcare workers to see uh, patients anywhere in the country in other words doctors nurses healthcare going back and forth uh, depending on the situation and again uh, a lot of the uh, uh, unions and such want to keep it within their own house within their own province and and just keep adding more and more and more to a situation that clearly uh, is not working at this point so it'll be fascinating to get this take uh, of it as well and that being said uh, the uh, the uh, the uh, House of Commons is back in in session and uh, as you can imagine because you know it's been quite a while they've uh, there's lots of lots of pent up energy, I guess, and uh, the prime minister there uh, yesterday was not there today, uh, and of course that draws its own you know you draw your own conclusion from that. Uh, but it's uh, it started up again, and uh, boy, it's uh, it, it started pretty much where it left off. We'll leave it at that. Here's uh, a cool report from Global News: is David Aiken on the return to Parliament. We know that even as we uh, negotiate with the provinces to ensure that we're delivering uh, more family doctors, uh, better mental health supports, uh, moving forward on backlogs, supporting Canadians who need uh, emergency care, uh, we will ensure that the Canada Health Act is fully respected. But Trudeau is also fending off attacks that his government is not doing enough to help Canadians struggling with continuing high inflation. The number of people eating at food banks has gone up to 1.5 million and crime is up 32%. So we wonder where all this half trillion dollars of inflationary debt actually went. Now we know. Liberal friends got the money. We're going to continue to step up in investing in Canadians while uh, Conservatives continue to push cuts and austerity uh, and uh, not being there for Canadians. The Honourable Leader of the Opposition. Pierre Polyev's Conservatives find themselves beginning the year leading the Liberals in recent national polls. That might be a sign their attacks are hitting the mark. The Conservative challenge now propose some solutions. Tell those swing voters who might agree that Ottawa is not working how the Conservatives would fix what's broken. We have a job to do. We will continue to do it. I'm very pleased that you recognize that, yes, we are growing up in the poll, but, you know, polls are polls. But the real one is the election. We'll get ready for that. In the meantime, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh met with Trudeau Monday afternoon to review their supply and confidence agreement. That's the agreement that is keeping the liberal minority in office. Singh says so far that agreement is working and he expects the governing liberals to continue to make progress on the NDP priorities of pharmacare, dental care and housing. David Aiken, Global News, Ottawa. 
And the race is on. There we go again, eh? Around and around. <laughs> and then we'll continue to watch it. All right. Uh, we certainly remember during the first, especially the first wave of the global pandemic, uh, almost three years ago now. Think of that. Uh, and how it affected healthcare and especially long-term care. And uh, now there are new standards for long-term care that are out at the federal level, uh, are not being made mandatory. So is there, is there teeth behind this? Is this just a guideline to follow? Uh, let's bring in Dr. Vivian Stampa, uh, uh, Stamped, <laughs> Stamatopoulos. Stamatopoulos. Uh, Stamatopoulos. <laughs> you know, I had it right until I actually turned the mic on and then I couldn't oh, do it. Oh, don't even worry. <laughs> It's you know, I I got my I got Mike shy you know uh, associate okay. teaching professor at the Ontario Tech University LTC advocate and co-founder of Canadians uh, for long term care uh, Vivian thanks so much for the time uh, so what what is new here what is different these are standards from the federal government what's the objective here well frankly this just felt like a lot of PR we had these two different committees keep in mind there was care standards committee and a technical standards committee and they've already released their their standards separately within the past you know six months so today was just literally amalgamating those findings into one you know basic report so to speak and then saying okay here you go but it's not mandatory so Bob's your uncle so this is a whole lot of, you know, noise for nothing. And it's, you know, upsetting because these people put a lot of work, like most of these committees do, because we've had multiple committees ad finitum ad nauseum over the decades in long-term care um, that tell us everything we need to do and, and, you know, offer great suggestions. But if you don't make them mandatory, well, then they never get implemented. And that's where we're at right now. So uh, is this one of those situations where here's what we think you should do, but again, it's up yeah. to each individual province to decide what, which, what works best yeah. individually for them, and around and around we go with healthcare in general. Um, so how much of this, because we all know it's a provincial responsibility, how much yeah. of this can be, and, and you know, many have asked this, why can't there be a certain level of care? I mean, we understand that the provinces want to run it, blah, 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 but why can't there be a certain level of care, a certain benchmark that has exactly. to be met right the way across the country? Is that too difficult to do? It's ludicrous, frankly. And every single family that I've talked to, you know, that has lived this long-term care system just shakes their head and is shaking their head today. And they're not happy with this, saying to themselves, like, how, how after everything that we saw happen, especially over the last three years, the worst long-term care mass casualty event in our collective history, I mean, it, you know, upwards of 15,000 people died, 5,000 in Ontario alone. I mean, this is bad. And yet we're still sitting here spinning our wheels talking about, oh, it would be good if you listen to X, Y, and Z. Yeah, it's offensive. I mean, of course, someone should be able to institute basic things like a four-hour minimum care standard at every single Canadian long-term care home. And if you want the federal money to get it, well, then you have to show us your staffing levels in real time and you have to actually, ex you know, meet the demand, meet the standard. But, you know, our prime minister is not doing what needs to be done to actually implement it federally. So, you know, he can sit there and say that it's provincial jurisdiction, which, of course, to some extent it is. But mm -hmm. we also have the Canada Health Act. Yeah. And at any point, that could have been amended to properly bring long-term care under it, which unfortunately was left out. It was a different time when the Canada Health Act was created. And we didn't anticipate, you know, not only this aging population, 
But, you know, the fact that women went into the workforce, if we're going to be real, because that is why we didn't have this properly accounted for, because mainly we had a stay at home reserve of unpaid female reproductive care laborers who did this work for private, for free, in private households. And nobody talked about it, even though, you know, in the, the toll it took on these women, for the most part, uh, was astounding and is still astounding. And, but now we've had women go into the workforce. So now we need long term care and we're going to need it more than we've ever needed it, even going forward with our demographic of women, you know, in the workforce right now. So, you know, sitting here and not taking the, the steps we need to actually make key enforceable standards across all these facilities is just frankly pathetic. Boy, you just gave a great example of why all these things need to be updated periodically. You said uh, you used the term X, Y, Z, whatever these reports have. Is there much more in the culmination of these two reports that isn't already there? That isn't? Is there? You know, is there anything new here? Well, they did talk about, you know, well, we they definitely learned from COVID that we need more private rooms, and frankly, it, it should be the the rule that every single resident has a private room unless they want a shared room, right? And keep in mind, right. we still have spouses. We still have spousal reunification issues in Ontario. We had a story come out yesterday about how family, you know, these, these couples are separated and Bill 7 isn't helping that at all. It's further separating them um, by, you know, violating, frankly, existing long-term care rights by sending uh, patients out of hospitals into, you know, long-term care homes they don't necessarily want to go to. So that's another issue. So to sit here and to say, we're going to let, you know, the provinces take the the wheel and do what's best is ludicrous because look what's happening in Ontario. We are literally the example of how to do things wrong in terms of long-term care. And we keep doing things wrong. When you look at Bill 1, you know, Bill 124 is part of the reason. And by the way, that, you know, decision to strike that down in the courts, a big part of that was about the negative toll it had on long-term care standards and the, you know, reduced quality of care during COVID because of you know, holding those wages stagnant. So, you know, Bill 124, Bill 7, which kicks patients out of hospitals and sends them into long-term care homes across the province that they don't necessarily want to go to. I mean, we cannot trust the provinces. We need, you know, a handful of key standards, you know, a number of full-time, part-time, ideally, mainly full-time workers in these facilities who are well-trained, who are paid well, right? And who provide a certain amount of care per resident per day. We're not asking for a million different standards. <laughs> I mean, yeah, just start yeah. with key basic ones and just mandate, you know, four to five and actually institute penalties and measures for transparency and compliance that make sense, right? You, we you have know, a promise of criminal standards. Where were those criminal charges? You, you know, it's interesting. We were talking about how things evolve and how things change and such. And um, and again, I, I've had parents in long-term care situations, and it's always been community. Bring them together, bring them together, community, community, community. And then, of course, when there's a global pandemic, that's the last thing. You know, you've got to get them oh. apart, get them apart. So it, it, it must be astounding how just people are completely rethinking how we do this now. Yeah, it's it's really upsetting. And, you know, not to mention in these the standards, we don't really see anything about the role of family caregivers. And I think one of the most devastating things that happened during COVID is when we shut family members out. Yeah, And, you know, yeah. part of the things that I was pushing yeah. for was having legislated rights for caregivers never to be separated from their loved ones in these, you know, whatever institution it is, hospitals, long-term care homes, retirement homes, because the negative toll was the same. And especially in long-term care, chronically underfunded and, and, you know, improperly managed and supervised sector across the board, family have been the invisible crutch holding up that sector. And we saw what happened when you abruptly pulled that crutch. The system collapsed. I mean, it, it did nothing to keep the virus out. All it did 
was remove the whistleblowers and frankly the the massive unreserved you know hidden labor of yeah. workers who go into these homes and provide substantial yeah. informal care by the way yeah, that so. and accurate, so accurate. Dr. Vivian uh, Stamatopoulos with us, Associate Teaching Professor, Ontario Tech University, Long-Term Care Advocate and Co-Founder of Canadians for Long-Term Care. It'll be fascinating to see where this goes, Vivian. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Hey, you too. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Canadian Taxpayers Federation is calling on the federal government to take a hard line against the Public Service Alliance of Canada's demands. Uh, and, and we're going to start to see this both on the federal level and the provincial level as uh, more and more uh, public service uh, contracts come due. And of course, we know where inflation is uh, and the ass are, pre- are pretty high. And it was interesting. I was uh, I, I was talking to a, a financial guy uh uh, earlier today and said, uh, you know, how long is inflation going to last and does it come down quite quickly? And, you know, they said, yeah, it can. So what it is this year is could be very different from uh, next year or or six months after that, depending upon, you know, how the economy reacts to the changes that they've made. That being said, uh, at the end of the day, anything in the public service that goes up costs us all. Let's bring in Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayer Federation Federal Director and with us now franco thanks for the time hope you're well i am thanks for having me on so uh there's uh certainly lots of uh of of talk around inflation and how difficult it is inflation sitting at what 6.3 percent roughly today um and and now there's a whole pile of government contracts both federally and provincially that are coming due and we know that they are a lot of times based on rates of inflation how do you how do you calculate this how do you come up with a three-year uh you know increase or or what have you uh contract when we're seeing things fluctuate like we are as far as inflation? Well, what these government union negotiators are pushing for, I mean, quite frankly, they should be laughed out of the the bargaining room. It's crazy. In Ottawa, you have a union that is pushing for up to 47% compensation increases over three years, up to 47% compensation increases. Now, we reached out to the government, right? The government uh, arm that is responsible for negotiating with these uh, union government negotiators, and they told us that the total demands would cost taxpayers about $9.3 billion with a B over those three years. To break it down even further, to just give your listeners more context of how crazy these union demands are, they're about an extra $27,500 for each bureaucrat on average each year. So this is crazy. You have families who are wondering whether they should buy milk or ground beef at the grocery store, and these union negotiators are pushing for a $9.3 billion increase over three years. Uh, you know, Franco, I always play devil's advocate when you're on, sure. and it's like, well, those government employees, we got to buy that food too, so how we can't afford it. So it's as you're talking about. Okay, but the vast majority of government employees received at least one raise during the pandemic. Okay, so let's remember that. 312,000 federal government employees received at least one raise during the pandemic. That's between 93 and 98% of all federal government employees during those years. So the vast, vast, vast majority here just got at least one raise. And, 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 and you know what? I think we've all struggled over the last couple years. I think we have in our own way. But the way that these government employees struggled wasn't the way 
that the people who would have to pay these higher bills struggled, right? The, the lost jobs, the pay cuts, the small businesses who are worried about a possible recession around the corner and are worried about significant revenue debts. So it's one thing to want people to be able to afford to put food on their family here, but pushing for up to 47% compensation increases is ridiculous. Some of the non-wage benefits that this that these union negotiators are pushing for, let alone salary, are ridiculous. So should increases like this be based on inflation? Because during normal times, it seems like a good idea. We talked about the accelerator taxes, Franco, and, and how nobody noticed them over the last couple of years because they were like 1% or whatever. Then all of a sudden, you go up to 8%, 7%, 6% inflation. All of a sudden, you can really see prices jump. Uh, is this type of raise warranted every year over a three-year deal as that compounds? Um, you know, Is inflation still going to be rampant in three years from now? Yeah. Well, first of all, I, I think let's just let's just speak frankly here. Uh, the union negotiators are using inflation as a way to gouge taxpayers. Okay, because what does inflation have to do with paid leave for seventy five hours every year? What does inflation have to do with someone taking or wanting paid leave for two weeks of the year? Right? What does inflation have to do with wanting to be paid double time for overtime hours? What does inflation have to do with pushing for meal allowances? Meal allowances. Really? We're, we're expected to pay for someone to walk to their fridge and grab a sandwich, right? So it's, it's these types of non-wage benefits that really signal to me that this isn't really about inflation. It's about getting as much money as possible as they can from their neighbors who are struggling in the private sector, the taxpayers. And what's, what I think this really shines a light on is just how frivolous the federal government has been spending for years and years and years that these union negotiators think that they can walk into a bargaining table, ask for up to 47% over three years, and not get completely laughed out of the room. Uh, I know you're 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 dealing mostly with federal, uh, but you know we here in the provincial level uh, in Ontario, uh, the the public service workers held to one percent. What about those that say, "Hey, we've been held to this for three years. We deserve something." Yeah, you know, it's tough for me to really weigh into it without uh, understanding the exact details. Of course, I focus on the federal government. The yeah. one thing that I will say that actually, well, two things. Let me say two things here um, that that deal both with the federal government and the provincial government is number one is the taxpayer's ability to pay. I mean, we just have to understand. We have to see what the taxpayers are struggling with and, and really ask what can the average family afford to pay. But the second thing is, is, you know, we, we get these questions about, okay, well, this percentage increase, uh, is it right, is it wrong? Well, what is the baseline that we're dealing with here, right? Because every single report I've seen across every single level of government continues to show that when you're comparing apples to apples, it's not always possible, but when you are, a government employee now receives significantly more than their counterpart in the private sector, So when you're looking at all levels of government, that wage gap is about a 9% premium for government employees. So I think we have to start looking at the baseline here. Uh, Obviously, there seems to be turbulent times ahead. Uh, Are we seeing job action here? Where do you you think this is going? Well, we have seen government union negotiators uh, threaten strikes. So we've been talking about PSAC this entire time. That's one federal government union. Um, there's other negotiations going on with the Canada Revenue Agency. Now, they are pushing for 
pay increases over three years. So they're also pushing for Pluto there. And they are threatening strike votes right around tax refund time. Isn't that nice, right? Here's the threat that they're implying. Essentially, fork over a ton of more money, or you won't get your money back that you're owed from the government at tax refund time. So we have heard government union negotiators threaten strikes if taxpayers don't fork up a whole bunch of money. Franco Terrazano with his Canadian Taxpayer Federation Federal Director. The Federation calling on the federal government to take a hard line against the Public Service Alliance of Canada's demands uh, up to 47% increase. Franco, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you so much for having me on. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The one good thing of the global pandemic is we promised we'd make changes to the health system, the Canadian health system, uh, both federal and provincial levels. And uh, boy, it's been a difficult journey, but we've certainly seen progress in, in, in decisions at least being made in the last couple of weeks. Uh, and, and of course, they don't come with uh, without controversy. Uh, but one of the issues in regard to all of this is the ability of healthcare doctors, nurses, whoever, to go from province to province to province and practice anywhere in the country. If you're licensed in Canada, you're licensed in Canada. Uh, and the, uh, the Canadian Medical Association online survey uh, of, of uh, physicians and medical learners found 95% would like to see a pan-Canadian licensing program in doc- uh, adopted in Canada. Let's bring in Dr. Kathleen Ross, CMA president and with us now. Kathleen, thank you for the time. Hope you're, uh, hope you're well. I'm doing very well. Thank you for asking. So, uh, first of all, uh, there's so many that seem to support this. Who does not support this? Why is this such a difficult conversation to have? I don't think it's a difficult conversation. And certainly, it's not a surprise to any of us that we're facing the greatest uh, health human resource crisis the country uh, has ever seen. And, and solution to these crises, we need to think out of the box. So the uh, 95% of our members surveyed that indicated support for this is reflective of that. Uh, And it may well be that 5% uh, just need more information to understand the benefits. Uh, (laughs) So that being said, it seems, with certainly with 95%, um, there really seems to be a a push for this type of reform. And again, this is just one example. But but again, what are the obstacles? Are they unions? Are they other associations? Um, Obviously, we've heard that there's costs with having to apply from province to province to province. Therefore, somebody is generating revenue from this. Who is, again, can we identify? who is or what organizations are against this sort of thing and 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 perhaps why what their interests are i think it's hard to frame that in people being against it it's a a different way of thinking as you know we have 13 different health uh, systems inside of canada and each of those with their own regulatory bodies and uh, each of the provincial territorial governments with the support of our licensing colleges need to have these conversations uh, and are open to having these conversations uh, with regards to a single licensure across Canada. Uh, uh, conversations are one, are one thing, Kathleen, but this survey has, pro- has proven 95% of, you know, of the CMA members think this is a great idea. It, it, how much clout does that cover, uh, hold? Because to me, that would sound like that's a very convincing argument for this. 
Uh, well, I certainly hope so. And the CMA has been actively promoting this this dialogue uh, for a while now. And we're starting to see areas uh, across Canada move. Ontario has uh, has recently opened up uh, their their workforce to say, yes, if you're licensed elsewhere in Canada, we'd welcome you here in Ontario. And, and I know that the Atlantic provinces are working towards a, uh, a pan-Atlantic licensure. So there is indeed uh, movement in these areas. Opposition people, those that are opposing this, uh, often say that you're poaching from province to province. You're poaching, although, you know, I think most employees would like to be poached. I think that helps everybody in the end. <laughs> you just create more employees and pay them better. Uh, but what about those that criticize this as poaching? Well, I, would, uh, I wouldn't categorize it that way. I think we're, we're looking to offer job opportunities for healthcare workers across Canada. Um, we would really be asking, why would people choose to leave? What is different? Uh, we want to drive more of our healthcare workers into, into regular work in our system, and how can we make it better for them across the country? Is this just a matter of time before this happens, Kathleen? I mean, have we got to the point of no return? Again, the the reforms that we've seen in the last week or two, has this been a turning point in your mind? I sincerely hope that this is a turning point. You know, we need this increased portability. Um, our, our responders, physicians and medical learners have acknowledged that the benefits of pan-Canadian licensure, particularly when improving access to rural, remote and northern communities, uh, and, and the opportunity to have locums or temporary placements for maternity, education leave, personal leave, all of that helps to improve caregiver uh, and uh, physician wellness and works towards retention in these areas. We need this. Uh, and many will say there's nothing new. A lot of these ideas, suggestions have been talked about in the past, but it seems that public opinion has changed on this. Do you get that feeling? Well, I think the public is starting to understand uh, the issues around our healthcare system a little bit better and, uh, and really start to ask the tough questions. Uh, when we look at the survey that the Canadian Medical Association did in 2019, we saw then that 91% of our members supported pan-Canadian licensure, so increasing it to 95% is, is not a surprise. Do you think this is just a matter of time before it happens? Uh, obviously, the the Prime Minister meeting with uh, the, the Premier's coming up, uh, it certainly looks like we are heading towards more reforms, uh, and, and many hoping for that. Uh, do you think this is just a matter of time? And another question, Kathleen, what about other jurisdictions, the U.S., whatever? Can you can you free uh, move freely from one state to another in other parts of the world like this? No, absolutely. And in fact, the United States and Australia both have models for interjurisdictional licenses. And overall, their experiences have been positive. The United States has a nursing licensure compact that's a single multi-state license uh, that allows nurses to work in any of 37 states under one license. And certainly when they updated their compact from 1999 to, to 2015, states were provided with an opportunity to back out uh, and none of them withdrew. Dr. Kathleen Ross with us, CMA President, Canadian Medical Association President. 95% would like to see a pan-Canadian licensing program adopted here where once you get your Canadian license, you can go anywhere in the country. Uh, just another reform that many are talking about and, and asking for. Kathleen, thanks so much for the time. Good luck with all this. Be well. 
Thank you very much for your time. Let's bring in Bill Brio, TV critic and author uh, Cindy Williams. You might remember her from uh, Laverne and Shirley, also Walk On and uh, Happy Days, how that started. And then originally, way back when, with uh, Ron Howard in American Graffiti, Bill Brio is with us now. Bill, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Doing well, Scott. How are you doing? So far, so good. This is sad to hear. I remember having a boyhood crush on Cindy Williams as a kid uh, and seeing her first in American Graffiti. And then it sort of spawned there with Ron Howard in, in, a, in a guest appearance, I guess, with the two characters on, on Happy Days. And then it went from there. Yeah, you know, and there's been so many of these uh, folks who we grew up watching who have passed away over the last several years, and uh, they do feel like deaths in the family for many of us who spent hours and hours and hours watching them. What do we know of how she passed? I understand it was a sudden illness? I don't have any more details. Family put out a release uh, basically um, just saying how much they'll miss her without a lot of details. She was 75, and uh, yeah, a short illness is all that I've read. Uh, obviously not a character as dominant as uh, Kirstie Alley or uh, or Shelley Long or someone like this, but sort of found her niche in these two shows somehow. Well, they were enormously popular. Laverne and Shirley, uh, when it began, you know, as you mentioned, she was on Happy Days first. Gary Marshall, uh, Penny Marshall's brother, produced the show's and uh, when it started in 76, it was top three instantly. It was the most watched show in the United States and probably Canada for two or three seasons in the uh, late 70s. Uh, so phenomenally popular. So, you know, she made a huge impact. And American Graffiti was a big hit as well. So she had, through the 70s, quite a run. Uh, and and obviously, uh, Gary Marshall, an incredibly hot uh, producer at that time, was he just onto something here? The whole revival thing was it the way he was doing things? Uh, what was it about these shows that that uh, that made them successful? He just tapped into nostalgia for uh, a simpler time in America. I mm -hmm. think you know, American Graffiti showed everyone that there was money to be made in nostalgia for the late fifties early 60s, all that music came flooding back with graffiti from Motown and all the early rock and roll. And so, um, yeah, Laverne and Shirley was set in the late 50s, early 60s in a small town, Milwaukee. Uh, and I just think it tapped into sort of this make America great again uh, fable mm. or idea. Like it was, it was, you know, a series that was sort of based on those days, but really was not. And um, I just think that Americans who had been watching All in the Family and Maude and all these Norman Lear shows that were very bracing and real and frank and, you know, that they just, when Laverne and Shirley and Happy Days and Mork and Mindy came along, they were ready to sort of turn that corner back to simpler times. Uh, it was funny. I was watching an interview. Uh, I don't know exactly what it was, but obviously later in life between uh, Penny Marshall and Cindy Williams. And I was amazed at how the chemistry between the two, it's really not that much different than what it was on the show. And, you know, Penny Marshall was referring to uh, how uh, Cindy Williams just started going through her purse because it was so messy and started organizing it. And then, you know, the other one breaks out and says, you know, I can't hide Anybody can have a purse like that and find anything. It's like, I'm, I'm absolutely <laughs> disgusting. And it was like it was a scene right out of the show. 
it sort of wrote itself. And I think that was the genius that Marshall putting these two together. His sister was very worldly and, and cynical in many ways. And, uh, you know, Cindy Williams was this sort of this bright and sassy, you know, uh, from from Hollywood, born in Van Nuys, California, uh, that they just were opposite in, a, in some ways. And that makes a good comedy team. You can't both be the same person. So that plus they really could could do shtick. You know, they were physical and that was missing on television and not seen really since I Love Lucy. So it worked. Uh, you know what, Bill? I was just, that was just coming to mind because I saw a clip the other day where they're like hanging on a coat rack of all of yeah. things. And then they're trying, they're both trying to run on, on this coat rack to try to get off it. And it, the first thing I thought of is like, if this was black and white, it would be the Lucy show or sorry, <laughs> uh, I Love Lucy. Well, Gary Marshall, uh, you know, he started out writing on the Lucy show and then also on the Dick Van Dyke show with Carl Reiner. One of the things those shows did, especially Van Dyke, they would take the cast and they would do a let's put on a show thing where the, the, the writers would be on the Alan Brady show doing the stuff. So they did yeah. that with Laverne and Shirley when they wrote some scripts. They'd have their Christmas episodes and you would see Penny Marshall and, and uh, Cindy Williams singing and dancing and twirling batons and literally doing an old-fashioned kind of show. And I think that was endearing to a lot of people. Bill Brio with his TV critic and author talking about the passing of Cindy Williams, Laverne and Shirley, uh, happy days in American graffiti passing away at the age of 75. Bill, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. You might remember uh, before Christmas, I think I believe it was mid-October, uh, and inflation was just heading north and, and everybody was feeling the pinch. Uh, we're hearing of profits from grocery chains, so on and so forth. And the Loblaw grocery stores announced it was uh, they were going to freeze prices on their no-name products uh, through till the end of January. And that happened has come to an end. Uh, they will unfreeze these prices. However, say that uh, they are promising to keep their no-name brand, uh, the prices flat on products whenever they can. To talk more about all of this, did it help? Did it work? Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Doing very well. Thank you, Scott. I remember when this came out, another uh, food professor was saying they were concerned about price fixing because um, at first Loblaw has announced, had announced it, and then there was sort of rumblings that other were going to follow suit. Uh, what is the fallout of this? Did it work? Did it do? Did it do? Uh, did it help us in any way? Um, uh, just let me just very quickly uh, respond uh, to that food professor. I don't know who it is, but I'm I'm really deeply skeptical. Um, in Canada, I'm not talking in, in, in developing countries where I've taught extensively, like Russia, where there is high levels of corruption, or Ukraine or China. But uh, there's so much transparency today in uh, countries like Canada, the US, Germany, UK. The, there's just enormous transparency. Social media is everywhere. Um, investigative journalists are everywhere. Uh, uh, audited financial statements must be uh, disclosed for all these companies. Uh, you know, people leak, employees disgruntled at the government inside the 
government leak if somebody if there's from negative information discovered. So I, I just don't believe that there's you know organized conspiracies going on by large corporations that are under the uh, scrutiny every day. That doesn't mean that they can't communicate to other companies what they're doing by through press releases. That's how you tell what your employer, what your your empl- your excuse me your competitors what you're doing. You announce a press release and say here this is what we're doing, and then they all know. But to your point, uh, I was very critical of Loblaws when they did this back in October. Why? Because they were sending signals, the wrong signals, in my view. Mm. And I teach strategy. I've been teaching strategy for 35 years. I thought it was a bad strategy because what they were doing was playing into the hands of critics and saying, look, you know, you're making so much money. You know, you could just, you know, absorb this. Well, guess what they did? They said, we're going to absorb the price increase. So they're mm-hmm. playing into the hands of critics that you make so much money, you can you can just accept and eat it. You can absorb it. And, and it also implies that prices are very, uh, shall we say, arbitrary, that they're not set by supply and demand. They're set by the Let's use the language of the NDP, the very deeply confused language of the NDP, in my opinion, that this is all about greedflation. And they're sitting there in the back rooms, people with little glasses, you know, and uh, trying to figure out how they can stick it to consumers on this product or that product. It's a nice Hollywood story for people who are truly naive and don't know how large corporations work. And yes, I did work for two large corporations for nine years. And that's not how decisions are made. It was a mistake to do that because they did eat the price increases from the suppliers. We do know that the prices of suppliers continued to increase. So they did absorb it, which meant the accounting is really simple, everybody. You got revenues coming in, you've got expenditures going out, and what's left over is your gross profit margin. So if you're not passing on your price increases, what you're doing is you're driving down your gross profit margin. So about six months from now, when they release their quarterly data, there's a lag from after the quarter end, it takes another three months to produce the data, we will probably see that they had a modest decline in their gross profit margin for the three months that they did this, what they called a price freeze. But they had to face the music because no company can run on ideology. They have to run on reality. That is to say, you must cover your costs or you go out of business. I, when I was in the bank years ago, shut down some businesses that did not pay their bills. They're, they were losing money. And so we had to put them out of business, because uh, close them down and put them into bankruptcy because they could not pay their bills as they became due. That's just a reality. So Loblaws realized, oh, my goodness, the prices are going up and uh, we're, we're really taking a hit. And so they've announced that this is the end of the price freeze. One more quick point, Scott. Their timing, even though they should never have done it last October doing the price phrase, at least their timing and ending it is is pretty good, maybe by sheer fluke, probably, by accident, by serendipity, because the Bank of Canada is predicting a significant decline in inflation in Canada this year, which will necessarily include uh, food inflation. And they're mm-hmm. predicting it's going to be down to 3% by mid-year. And then if you look at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, I have great respect. There's a, thousands of economists there. They do top-notch work. They are predicting food inflation specifically in the U.S., in 2023 will be in the three to four percent range and we are heavily strongly integrated with the us 
And two, we import a lot of food from the U.S. And three, the U.S. is a large food producer. So it is probable that all these other things that are happening, as well as decline in food inflation in the States, will feed over into Canada, along with supply chains coming back into balance, along with the impact of eight eight interest rate increases, which is really cooling down the economy. And so what we can expect is that food prices will increase will decline significantly. They won't go back down to two, but I would not be shocked if we see food prices in the three to 4% range in this year, uh, in 2023, in Canada, consonant or uh, f- tracking following uh, US food inflation prices. So as a PR campaign, did this work? I mean, obviously, as you brought up a great point, if you freeze prices, it, it, it creates the illusion that you have been gouging. But maybe your message is, no, I'm just going to be a good guy. I'm going to cut into the company profits a bit and give you all a discount. Did we get that message? I don't think we did. Um, uh, I, I think the wrong message was received, and I can understand, uh, blaming consumers. Hey, if it's that easy to to freeze prices, well, why don't you do it all the time? You know, implying yeah. that you've got buckets of money down hidden. At, my phrase is, uh, you know, is this stereotype by people that don't understand business. They think that down deep in the vaults of companies, whether they're banks or whether they're airlines or whether they're loblaws, they've got buckets and buckets of hidden amounts of hidden cash and reserves down in the vault in the basement. <laughs> you know, and they don't realize that every business is an intermediary. It buys stuff, it transforms it into a service or a finished product called an airplane ticket or called uh, groceries on the shelf, and then they sell it to you and they recoup, hopefully, their costs plus a profit. It's that simple. Business is that simple. You buy stuff, you transform it into finished goods and services, and then you sell it to consumers. This is not complicated. I know Mr. Singh does find this terribly complicated, but it isn't complicated for those who have looked at or worked in business. So what should Loblaw have done in this situation? Is this about better education, better communicating your message, what you're trying to do? Is this a communication issue? Yes, and a strategy issue, both, both. They What they should have done is said, look, people, we're going to level with you. We're going to tell you precisely where our costs are going up. We're going to give you a report card every 30 days. We will post it on our website. It'll be the aggregated data for Canada. You don't even have to use the word aggregated, big fancy word, and just say, we're going to tell you how much our our energy went up, how much our food dairy went up, how much our, our, our vegetables went up. And we're going to post it every month. And then we're going to add it up and show you. We're going to give you the consumers of Canada, a report card. And then we're going to have it audited by the auditors so you won't say that, oh, well, you're just fudging the data. They should have done something like that. Come clean, speak truth to power. People know prices are going up for everything. People know there's a war in Ukraine because of Russia's illegal invasion. They know wheat prices went up. And if they don't, that's part of the purpose of a report card. I thought that's what they should have done. And then they could have closed the deal by saying, We will do everything in our power to do. We will promise you that we will not pass on one penny of increase except the price increases that have been passed on to us. We will not Hmm. pad them at all. So if we get a 5.2% increase in our input costs, we will pass on to you 5.2% increase in our prices on the shelves. That's what they should have done. But you know, CEOs get, they, they get so terrified of the media, they get terrified of social media, and they really get terrified of just going out and just leveling with the public, with data, 
and putting it out there and explaining it. And then, you know, most some people come along and say, I don't like your numbers. I don't believe them. You know, Jagmeet Singh can say you made it all up. And then you have your auditors standing on the side saying, here are the audited numbers every month from our auditors. Mm. And you pay extra and you pay for those numbers being audited to the public so that they have confidence that you are speaking truth to power and leveling with them. Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, Loblaw, announcing that they're, uh, they will unfreeze the prices that they have had f- uh, frozen for the last uh, 90 days in their no-name brand category. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, you've heard of the name uh, McKinsey and Company probably a lot lately. Global management consulting giant McKinsey and Company says its contracts with the federal government make up as much as 10% of its gross revenue in Canada. So, in other words, Canada is a... Is a massive client for McKinsey and Company. Uh, the Canadian revenue figures for McKinsey's Canadian operations contained in a U.S. court filing show how integral uh, federal government contracts uh, are awarded to the New York-based firm, which has offices in Toronto, Montreal, Calgary, and Vancouver. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch, and with us now, Duff. Thanks for the time. Uh, obviously, uh, McKinsey and Company says its contracts with the federal government make up as much as ten percent of its gross revenue. Uh, Obviously, this is setting off red flags for many. Uh, What is different here? How is this any different than some of the other consulting contracts they have with other big firms like this? Um, Maybe not much is different. Um, There are relationships between other uh, big businesses and the liberals um, across lots of industry sectors, including consulting. And uh, other companies that have received significant contracts for consulting, like Deloitte, uh, the accounting firm. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there are deeper relationships here in that the former head of McKinsey, uh, Dominic Barton, was both the head of an economic uh, council task force advising the government and finance minister Bill Morneau, and then was made Canada's ambassador to China. Uh, but he was no longer with McKinsey at the time. Um, and uh, those ties uh, may have led to these contracts. We don't really know. This is why uh, it's legitimate for a parliamentary committee to investigate. And I think actually they're going to open up a, a big box of uh, that will reveal lots of concerns about lots of consulting contracts. The biggest concern being, why are you hiring outside people when you already have people that were paying as the public? called public servants who have expertise in all these areas and are um, able to do these jobs and don't we don't need to hire someone else and pay them double when we're already paying someone. Uh, many have, have talked about how the, the size of government has increased. Do we really have the expertise to do this stuff in-house, though? I mean, I, you can see where some expertise may be needed, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here, Duff. Um, increased immigration was one of their suggestions, also creation of the infrastructure bank. Do we have the capabilities of doing this in-house? Well, in terms of policies, yes. I mean, we have policy development divisions in every department, in terms of technology, um, you know, it's quite possible that uh, 
public servant managers who are trying to buy technology need help because they may not know the technology very well. This is a problem across every institution, big business and big government around the world where you have tech people come in and say, this will solve everything for you. And the managers uh, and executives that are trying to decide whether to spend the money have no technical expertise because they grew up using pen and paper. And and a lot of them haven't caught up. Uh, And there's lots of waste in that area across the board because of that lack of expertise. But um, again, when you just look at the pattern of how much in contracts the McKinsey received from the conservative government, and then it's just increased exponentially with the liberals, and you have the former head of McKinsey was very much tied in with the liberals, advising them and then becoming Canada's ambassador, chosen by Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, uh, to be Canada's ambassador to China. And, you know, that looks like there's a connection there between uh, him being so close to the government and his former company uh, getting lots of contracts. So that's why it needs to be investigated. And uh, But as I say, I think it will just open up a larger investigation into this whole question of is contracting out really worth it in a lot of these cases or are we essentially paying someone double uh, what a public servant's paid, and we already have a public servant who could do the job, so why are we paying anyone outside the government? Uh, so it seems like two points. The one you just mentioned, and also the second red flag, that Dominic Barton was named Canada's ambassador to China after leaving uh, McKinsey uh, a couple of years before. Is that the real red flag for you? Uh, yes, I think so. Um, but also, you know, he was, you know, with with uh, full security clearance on a task force uh, that advised the um, finance minister on Canada's economic future. So, you know, was got in very tight with uh, the finance department uh, during that time period. Um, McKinsey's own staff were providing support to that government task force, not public servants. And so when you look at that situation and how close he became and then what he went on to do being named uh, the ambassador um, there is just a uh, a lot of questions about whether that serving on that task force and helping with that was kind of a lost leader people know that term for business where you do something mm-hmm. for essentially free in order to get more business afterwards and you know business to his former company uh, where um, he still may have investments with it uh, and uh, and a pension that it's paying is is essentially uh, profit for for close colleagues of his in the past uh, and and also may even be flowing through to himself so uh, serious questions here but I think serious questions about a lot of uh, the uh, the consulting firms that this government and past governments have used and whether it's really worth it, given that they usually get paid double what public servants get paid. Duff Conacher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch. Uh, Lots of chatter about McKinsey and company, global consulting firm being used by uh, the Canadian government and how much of that work could be done by uh, in-house workers and plus Dominic uh, Dominic LeBlanc being uh, appointed as ambassador to China. Duff, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Yeah, thank you. Just just to correct you there, Dominic Barton. No, Dominic Barton, I'm sorry. Thank you very much, Dominic Barton. Uh, all right, Duff, thank you so much. We'll be watching the story. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, we certainly know how uh, the inflation and the rising cost uh, affordability, just basic things, how it has literally affected everybody, and especially when it comes to housing, you can expect how, or you can understand how it impacts those who were struggling before all of this. Uh, city councilors plan to discuss a $4 million uh, a year fund to boost the development of nonprofit housing in Hamilton amid a deepening affordability crisis. City officials and nonprofit providers alike acknowledge that this is just a drop in the bucket compared to what's needed to shore up steadily eroding affordable stock. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Jim Dunn is with us, Director of Canadian Housing Evidence Collaborative and an Urban Geography Professor at McMaster University and with us now. Jim, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thanks for uh, having me. Jim, has there ever been a time in history where we've uh, at least had a handle on this? Uh, it seems we're always one step behind here. Well, I mean, post-war, I think in the post-war era, we we got a handle on it. Um, you know, there was a lot of construction. There was a housing boom uh, for the returning soldiers and all those sorts of things. So 50s and 60s, yes, uh, but those were very different days in, in lots of different ways. Uh, post-pandemic, many have said this has been uh, an instrumental change in the world, similar to a world war. Are we looking at these issues differently? Do we need that same sort of ambition? Well, I think we need to take that kind of crisis mentality that we may have had at that time, which was, um, you know, there's there's an urgent need. Uh, we need to uh, look under under every stone. We need to try every tactic. I uh, mainly have been talking about this as kind of a scratch and claw approach, right? So we can't be, we're not going to find a silver bullet in all of this. We actually have to find some, you know, every little contribution uh, is worth considering and then scratch and claw and try and get as many units, retain as many units, build as many units, uh, keep as many people housed as possible using any means that we can. Many say that this $4 million is just a, a sort of break-even po- point, keeps going what is already there or replenishes things that are falling off. Um, why are we losing uh, housing stock? Can you explain that to us? Well, a few different reasons. I mean, one of them in the in the nonprofit sector has to do with uh, the fact that in 93, 94, the federal government basically pulled out of new investments in affordable housing after, you know, a couple of decades uh, of, uh, of work there. And so they continued these commitments to these long-term mortgages, and but they just didn't put any new in. These long-term mortgages, mortgages are in many cases, are coming to the end of their life. And so we need to find a new solution for being able to keep some of these housing units affordable. And, uh, you know, there's some work going on there. Another thing that's uh, happening um, uh, it has to do with uh, this the, the issue we have in Ontario is we have something called rent decontrol. So we don't have full-on rent control. Mm-hmm. We have rent control for people who live in market housing and who uh, are in older buildings. And there's a guideline increase that the province hands down. That's basically the rate of inflation every year. But when somebody leaves that apartment, then the landlord can charge whatever they want. So that means that apartment is lost to the affordable stock and the landlord uh, you know, there's, this is actually very attractive as an investment, right? So the, you know, the investor world says sees this as underperforming buildings, right? Because if only we had different tenants, we'd be able to get a lot more revenue out of that building. And so that's been a real attraction to private capital firms around the world. Is there any way to get investors involved in this type of housing or is it just it goes against the grain? 
No, actually there is. There's actually, you know, uh, as I hear it, there's a lot of social purpose investment funds that are quite interested in taking a lower rate of return than they might otherwise get in the open, you know, free capital markets. Uh, they're willing to take an, a lower rate of return, in, re- but they want to have some kind of social impact. So really the challenge here is to be able to get ahead of uh, of the game and try and, you know, acquire existing market buildings, right? So w- one of the things that we face in Canada and, you know, listen, I just should mention, Scott, like most industrialized countries are having a similar problem around housing affordability yeah. to ours. Yeah. We have a bit of a unique challenge, which is that um, only about three to four, th- sorry, four to six percent of households get their housing from the public or non-market sector in Canada. But compared to the UK, it's like 22 percent get it from the public or non-market sector. So we have a lot of modestly priced housing that we depend the mark on the market to provide. And so we have to find ways to protect that. And I think that one way is to actually try and mobilize some of this social purpose capital to acquire those buildings on the condition and, you know, get them in the hands of not-for-profit operation. And then on the condition that they stay at modest prices. I remember when there was a lot more rental housing than there used to be. It seems they stopped building apartment buildings. Is there an appetite for this? Do you think this is growing? And, you know, because obviously it's easy just to go to ask, you know, go to governments and ask for more money, but we know where that goes. Uh, is there a way to make this self-sustaining? Yeah, there has to be, right? So, I mean, I think there's ways to do kind of cross-subsidization where some people in uh, are, are renting from non-market um providers, so not-for-profit organizations, they're renting at full market rates, and then that's kind of cross-subsidizing some of the affordability. And the fact is the economy depends on it, right? So I saw uh, a chart just yesterday, and it showed the um, the price of housing relative to the wages of um, a software engineer in Toronto versus a number of U.S. cities, and Toronto's way higher. So essentially, unaffordability relative to the to the um, to the wage of a software engineer, and so you know, and that's our nature of our economy, right? Is a digital economy, and so if we can't actually provide housing for people like software engineers, then it's going to be hard for our economy to continue to thrive. Uh, we've heard lots of, ho- of uh, different uh, varieties of housing being suggested, tiny homes, this sort of thing. What are your thoughts on that? Well, anything that accelerates construction, so tiny homes. Um, uh, modular construction has been used effectively in a place like Vancouver for on kind of an emergency basis. That, that's the kind of stuff that, that lasts about three to four years. Um, it, it is really effective if you have lots of land and you can do it kind of in a single story because then you don't have to think about staircases and elevators and that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of the uh, things that we all, the other po- component that we have to think about is there are a lot of people who need support to be able to maintain their housing. Right. And, you know, honestly, in in the public and non-market sector, you can find units for the most, it's possible to find units for the most um the, the, the people with the greatest needs. The thing that's missing, though, is actually these medical supports, right? And we've got proven programs, uh, but there's so much styling between the housing sector and the health sector and the social services sector that it's very, very hard to get everything coordinated. And so another hmm. challenge we face. Jim Dunn with us, Director of Canadian Housing Evidence Collaborative, Urban Geography Professor McMaster University, talking about ways to improve housing and make it more affordable. Jim, is, uh, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Good luck. Terrific. Thanks so much, Scott. And I received a letter on on Sunday uh, from a group of liberals asking me to consider a very unique way of doing politics differently to move forward on some shared values to build a caring, connected, climate-ready Ontario. And I just decided after thinking about it for a day that I wanted to open a conversation and just ask people what they think. 
Uh, ask the Greens. Do they want you to leave and become a liberal? Ask the liberals. Do uh, they want you to leave the Greens and become a liberal? Uh, are they that close? Is this really a no-brainer uh, because he is a popular leader? Or is the ideology not as similar as one may think? Uh, this is a fascinating discussion. And as you can tell, that was a clip of uh, Mike Schreiner on Bill Kelly's show earlier on today. Uh, at first, he kind of blew it off. But now it looks like he's uh, he's considering this. And it, what, would the, what would the voters think? Let's bring in Nelson Wiseman, uh, professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, and with us now. Nelson, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well, Scott. Thank you. Uh, Nelson, certainly not the first time we've seen a political leader in, uh, or, or somebody switch political parties in any way. Are you surprised in this scenario about uh, the Liberal Party trying to woo uh, Mike Schreiner over? Well, when you say the Liberal Party's trying to woo him over, uh, I have a more limited view. I mean, the people who wrote that letter want to uh, woo him over, but uh, hmm. there are other people who want to become leader of the Liberal Party of Ontario, and they don't seem to be that enthused about it at all, from what I've seen. Does so this say... Just because, yes, just because some senior or former senior Liberals, like Deb Matthews, Greg Sorbara, and so on, want would like him to become the leader. Um, and when you say uh, the vote, how will the voters think? The voters aren't, uh, the people that are going to decide are, are members of the Liberal Party, if and when they have a convention. They haven't even come out with the rules yet. So, you know, we'll see. Now, I don't think we're going to have a, anything's going to happen probably until early 2024. Does this say, uh, if you're the Liberal Party, does this say, uh, hey, we don't have anybody? Or does it say we want to expand the tent? Well, every party wants to expand the tent. Uh, the other people that are uh, considering running for the Liberal leadership, and I think a number of them will throw their hats in, uh, think they, you know, that they could do it. It, it. Becoming leader of the Liberal Party is a big thing because the Liberal Party has been one of the two dominant parties in Ontario for most of Ontario history. In the last decade, it's become less of that big a thing because we've now had two elections in a row in which the Liberals not only ran third, but they didn't get official party status in the legislature. So they don't have uh, much in the way of funding resources uh, my feeling is that the party is also pressed for money, um, and it's very hard for a party that's in third place to leapfrog over the party that's in second place and become the government. Now, mm. it can be done. I mean, Justin Trudeau did it in 2015. Yep. I've seen it happen in Manitoba, but it's not the normal pattern because of the first-past-the-post system a lot of people think, well, look, it really comes down to the government and the main opposition party. So, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of strategic voting going on. And, and Schreiner is going to have all kinds of issues now dealing with his constituents mm. and, uh, and with others, because the whole philosophy or, or one of the underlying uh, premises for the Green Party and one of its arguments for why you should vote for it, because all the parties put out environmental policies now, is they say, well, you can't trust the other parties. We're the only real party that cares about the climate. That's why we have to form our own party. 
so uh, that now seems contradictory. Now, what I will say is, if I'm not mistaken, the support for the party crept up in last year's election. And uh, that was a positive sign, not that it leaped big, but in light of all the problems the federal Green Party had last year, which was a disaster for it, yeah, uh, you know, with the leaders and so on, the fact that the Ontario Party sort of hung on and picked up a little bit, didn't win any more seats, spoke well to it. And I think you're absolutely right. Schreiner comes across as an attractive figure. That being said, obviously a popular guy in this story has gotten a lot of attention. Should the Liberal Party be looking a lot deeper than not only a new leader or a new leader outside of the party with a high profile like this? Should, in other words, should they be heading down this road or they should, should they be looking inward to a new vision and then deciding the leader? Well, hmm, new vision. I don't know what the old vision is. I know that <laughs> You know, they uh, the way uh, the parties now work is that the vision of the party is whatever the leader wants. Mm. Uh, they end up de- determining policy in the liberal and conservative parties. It's somewhat different in the NDP, but even there, there's a lot of deference to the leader. So um, uh, we have no idea what the platform of the liberal party will be next time. What has happened in the past uh, three, four decades is that the Liberal Party has shifted leftward. Once yeah. upon a time, it was uh, the, the progressive, the old progressive conservative party was to the left of the Liberal Party of Canada, or of Ontario, and of Canada. Well, mm-hmm. of Canada, not so much, but, but of, in Ontario, which was essentially a rural-based party. That's changed in the last... Well, now it's going on to 40, 50 years, really since uh, Pierre Trudeau became prime minister and showed what you could do by winning the cities. So the liberals became more of an urban-based party, and uh, but they still hung on to some rural support. What's now happened is not only have they lost all that rural support, they don't have much urban support. It's there. They got more votes than the NDP last time. But as but their vote is inefficiently distributed, so the NDP won more seats. So I, I wouldn't count the Liberals out, but when it comes to vision, you know, who knows? They're going to be, what's their vision? Get rid of Doug Ford. Does it mean, does this mean that the Liberal Party is looking to, you talked about, you know, used to be center-left, that now they're looking to go even more so left by chasing the Green Leader? Well, it could be. Depends what the Green Leader if he becomes right. the liberal leader, which I don't think is a shoe in uh, you know, wants to happen. Uh, uh, it, what happens in the it, it now, what will happen is it's whoever goes out and sells a lot of memberships. Yeah. So that's so when we talk about what does the liberal party want, I say, well, who is the liberal party? The liberal party will be those people who have sold the most memberships and get those people to vote in the next leadership race whether that you know and then it'll and then the rules will mean a lot is it going to be online is it going to be a delegate convention is it going to are people actually going to be meeting at a convention that sort of thing and uh, all those are unknowns one one thing that um, 
Schreiner may not fully appreciate is how much of his job is going to be out there just trying to raise money. Yeah. Now I think hmm. he will attract. I think he will attract a number of um, uh, candidates who otherwise wouldn't run, who've given up on the Liberal Party. Hmm. And uh, so you've got to go out and raise money, and you've got to find a lot of people with a high profile in the community that, uh, you know, w- which will give a boost to the party in those individual ridings. Nelson Wiseman with us, professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, Ontario's leader of the Green Party, Mike uh, Mike Schreiner, being wooed by the Ontario Liberal Party to lead them. The story continues. Nelson, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, hope you're doing well. Doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing very good. Your thoughts on, uh, obviously, the Hamilton Bulldogs. Uh, it looks like they're going to head up to Brantford for uh, at least three years while the Renos are going on at First Ontario and, and such. Yeah, but my question is, why are they changing the name? Uh, if this is like a temporary thing and it's three years and then when the Renos are done, you're coming back. Why would you change the name? It's an interesting question. I'll tell you why it's an interesting question. Something local. Do you remember two-ish years ago when the Toronto Rock moved to Hamilton and they didn't change it to the Hamilton Rock or the Ontario Mm -hmm. Rock? They they kept it as the Toronto Rock because they said, well, we've put all this effort into branding that we don't really want to change it. And so I thought of that same thing today with, with the Hamilton Bulldogs. I think... There's a couple things here, but the biggest one is I think they're looking at this like if this was a one-year thing, maybe you just do it the way you do it. You keep it Hamilton. But if you're trying to sell tickets for three years to a smaller community like Brantford, you've got to give them something that feels like theirs. And so, you know, and let's be honest, they're gone for three years at yeah. least. Uh, they will be the Brantford Bulldogs, not the Hamilton Bulldogs. In why time. Why would it take more than three years? Like, the Renos aren't going to take that long. I mean, I guess by the time everything gets delayed and whatever, they usually do. But, I mean, like, are we looking at more than that? I mean, what are they? I, I thought they were doing a Reno here, not a complete rebuild. Uh, okay, two answers to that. First of all, uh, thank you for clarifying the end of your question there. Have you seen how long anything takes when it's public <laughs> yeah, sector yeah, and yeah. private sector work together? So, yeah, it shouldn't take three years. But would you bet your house that it won't be longer than that? No. Uh, I'm not sure I would. And the other part is, what happens if, and i just throwing this out there, what happens if the Bulldogs get to Brantford and the arena is full every night and the atmosphere is great and the people there love them and the city treats the ownership and the team a whole lot better than city or, you know, officials here seem to have treated Michael Andlauer over the years. Maybe, you know what? Is it crazy to think that he decides, you know what? This is pretty much okay. I like it here. I'm put, I've already Are you kidding me, Scott? Millions of they're, dollars. 
they're gone. They're gone, pal. They're gone. This is a massive opportunity for Brantford. They're sure gone. Sure I don't think is. they're, I, honestly, I don't think they're coming back. I think they'll, for the exact reasons you just said, we can fill it every night. We get what we want. This is, you know, close enough to the GTHA that we're still drawing. We're this, we're that. And I think Brantford is going to jump on this as an opportunity to promote their city. So I, I, I'd be, you know, I don't know. I'm not surprised they're coming. I would say it's 50 50 they're coming back. Uh, I'm, I don't know if it's that, but I'll say this. We will see what happens. But if Brantford does show up, see, that's going to be the big thing is if, if, yeah. if all of a sudden it's 1,200 people a night, they're not sticking around. But if that place mm-hmm. is full every night and with standing room, I think you can put in about 3,200. It's a small building, but you can do other but things. But full, it'll be an amazing atmosphere. Sure, it will. Sure, it will. So if it's full every night, and there's a lot of enthusiasm. And again, you know, it's a long story that we don't have time to get into right now. But this city and the people who run this city have not exactly done right by Michael and Lauer over the years. Yeah. They haven't. They, they have just basically ignored and dismissed and poo-pooed a lot of the stuff. When he showed up to uh, city council a couple of years ago, with his proposal, with thirty million of his own dollars in hand to build an arena at Limeridge, you don't have to like his idea, but I think surely the least you can expect is that you get treated politely and collegially. Yeah. As they're, they grilled him at city council like he was somehow on, on in the hot seat in a cross examination. Success like, is I, I, bad. I don't quite understand. I don't quite understand what the point is here. The guy's foundation last year gave a million dollars to charities in the city. If he leaves, guess what also leaves? But nobody thinks about that stuff. And you know what? Um, We've just answered the question why they have changed the name. Because that is leverage, my friend. And good for him. Good for him. He's got more options now. He does have options. And as as I say, assuming that Brantford shows up for this thing and assuming the people there don't drop the ball... I would not disagree with you in saying that there is a realistic chance that maybe this is the last time we have the Bulldogs here. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up right after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. The Bulldog story will be an ongoing saga. Uh, Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Frank wrote in to say, hi, Scott. I got a trivia question for you, which might be hard to answer, yet might not even have a logical answer or Better yet, a true answer. Why has my home natural gas bill doubled all of a sudden? That is a damn good question, Frank. David wrote in to say, Hello, Scott. I voted conservative the last two elections, but with most of what they have done this term, I was ready to go back to liberals. But now with Mike Schreiner considering a run for liberal leader, if chosen, liberals are out for me as I cannot afford the liberal and green ideologies. I also feel I cannot afford the NDP, so I'm at it to hold my nose and vote conservative again. (laughs) 